0: Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the audio edition of the Weekly Roundup, where we look over some of the major headlines pertaining to the asset and wealth management industry across Singapore, Hong Kong and China. In this episode, we are examining the developments that happened in the week of March 22 through 26, so let's dive in. Starting down in Singapore... DBS Private Bank, the private banking arm of the Singapore Bank, has set a target of having over half its AUM in sustainable investments, defined as those above a triple B rating from MSCI ESG ratings, by 2023, up from the current level of 41%, as reported by Fund Selector Asia. To boost sustainable AUM, DBS Private Bank will expand its product suite. And is looking to onboard at least 10 sustainable products this year including etfs mutual funds and private equity products the bank will also launch a new esg rating methodology in the second quarter of 2021 moving from rating individual holdings to a holistic assessment of client portfolios as highlighted in a previous episode DBS raised nearly 700 million U.S. dollars from a sustainable product launched in October 2020, and the managing director of MAS gave a keynote speech extolling green and sustainable financing and how Singapore would work to promote green and sustainable financing in the city-state. Tamasek, a Singaporean sovereign wealth fund, has also stated it believes more investors will engage in impact investing, shifting away from its traditional private equity base. In March this year, Tomasek entered into an agreement with impact fund manager Leapfrog Investments to channel 500 million US dollars into impact investments. Additionally, JP Morgan Asset Management is expanding its range of sustainable funds offered in Singapore, adding two Luxembourg domiciled funds to its product portfolio. This joins two green-focused BMP Paribas Asset Management products and four Allianz Global Investor ESG products approved in Singapore this year. And that was it for Singapore this week, so moving up to Hong Kong. Following unrest and economic recession, authorities in Hong Kong have sought to reassure investors that the territory's tax haven status will remain unchanged, and that as it faces a forecast deficit of 17.9 billion US dollars for the next financial year, its first deficit in 15 years, tax increases are not currently being considered. It is feared that increasing corporate taxes to plug the expected fiscal shortfall would further exacerbate issues associated with Hong Kong's potential decline as a financial center, and that other financial centers across APAC, namely Singapore who boasts similarly low corporate and individual tax rates, would benefit. Hong Kong has already increased its stamp duty on stock trades by 30%, with the move contributing to a sell-off in equities in February, but industry commentators do not expect a long-term impact on the city's stock market to eventuate. Also, the future of the advisory industry in Hong Kong remains delicately poised, as reported by Fund Selector Asia. With the lucrative expatriate population declining, ongoing geopolitical issues threatening the status of the territory, and the exit of several firms from the market, those that remain are split as to the long-term viability of the special administrative region. Some industry players note that whilst the expatriate population is declining, they are being replaced by an increasingly affluent domestic population, and the increased access to wealth in the Greater Bay Area with the advent of the Wealth Management Connect program is likely to spur growth in the industry as well. Whilst several firms have exited the market, with BNY Mellon Wealth Management a major one, others, like Cambridge Associates, are entering it. Other factors potentially adding to the uncertainty are the regulatory environment, with industry players noting that having four regulators influencing the advisory market can be confusing to the public, and the apparent change in legal framework from a common law system to one that increasingly bears characteristics of the mainland Chinese legal system. How the future of the financial advice industry plays out, and how the characteristics of the firms and clients within it change, will be interesting to track. Now moving up to China. Having undertaken its final on-site check, Industry observers believe that BlackRock's granting of a public fund license is imminent, as reported by Ignite's Asia. If granted, the issuance of the public fund license would make BlackRock the first foreign asset manager to have 100% control of a retail fund management business. Having received initial approval for the license in August 2020, BlackRock then received an on-site inspection from CSRC officials. Around five months later... In February 2021 and this inspection is believed to be the last step in the authorization process to receive the retail license should the license be granted BlackRock will then have six months to launch a public fund product this is similar to private fund managers who receive a private fund license for their PFM Woofie and then have six months to launch a product or potentially lose their license in addition to BlackRock five other foreign fund managers have applied for a public fund license, who will no doubt be watching BlackRock's application process with interest. Additionally, J.P. Morgan is in the running to be the first foreign asset manager to have 100% control over a public fund entity, via its decision to spend over a billion US dollars to buy out the Chinese partner in its fund management company joint venture. And the process it goes through when compared to BlackRock's could provide some insights to retail fund aspirants as to which path is the best to pursue. Further, in addition to waiting on whether they will be the first foreign asset manager to take 100% control of a public fund company, JP Morgan is also set to take a 10% stake in the wealth management arm of China Merchants Bank, spending $410 million U.S. million for the stake, as reported by Asian private banker. This follows the partnership agreement between the two financial institutions signed back in 2019, which named JP Morgan as the preferred product provider for China Merchant Bank's wealth management arm. Additionally, it was reported at the start of 2021 that JP Morgan and CMB were in discussions to establish a wealth management arm subsidiary as BlackRock, Tomasak, Amundi, and Schroeder's have done. However, As with their path to a retail fund license, JP Morgan is pursuing a different route to enter China's banking wealth management product space. A spokesperson for JP Morgan stated that an equity stake in the CMB wealth management arm provided the greatest clarity, simplicity, and efficiency for their strategy in this field. JP Morgan also stated that the venture would focus on designing and distributing asset management solutions, including Mixed Income Plus, multi-asset, and target-date fund products to Chinese investors. The partnership could provide JP Morgan with an advantage when it comes to competing with other foreign asset and wealth managers looking to increase their share of China's burgeoning wealth management market. HSBC, Credit Suisse, and several other firms have signaled their intentions to invest personnel and capital into China in order to grow their presence. And, as reported by Fitch in 2020, CMB had the strongest retail profile among mid-tier commercial banks in China. China Merchants Bank also has a substantial private banking arm, with AUM reportedly in excess of 2.2 trillion RMB at the end of 2019, according to Asian private banker. According to its annual report, at the end of 2020, the China Merchants Bank wealth management arm had reached AUM of 2.45 trillion RMB up nearly 12% from 2019, and 92% of the unit's 3.77 billion RMB revenue came from the CMB parent unit outsourcing mandates to its wealth management arm. On the topic of foreign asset and wealth managers looking to make inroads into the Chinese market, the Texas Investment Managers, a French asset manager, still seeks opportunities to acquire a local investment business in China an ambition it has harbored since at least 2019, according to Ignite's Asia. As growth across Asia-Pacific continues, Natixis aims to expand the number of affiliate strategies distributed across the region and is actively looking for acquisitions in key markets, including China. Contrary to other asset managers who have pursued a joint venture or woofy structure to enter China, Jean Raby, CEO of Natixis IM, Insists that its multi boutique model would be used in China, a strategy no other asset manager has attempted to date. Also, Newberger Berman, a US asset manager, has received approval from AMAC to launch its fourth QDLP product, according to Fund Selector Asia. The product, named the Newberger Berman Overseas Equity Investment No. 4 Private Fund, joins the firm's three other QDLP products with the last two launched in January 2021 and October 2020 respectively. It is estimated that 44 QDLP products have been launched by 32 foreign asset managers who operate QDLP Woofies in China as at time of recording. Further, Selector Asia reports that the PFM WOFI of APS Asset Management, a Singaporean asset manager, will launch its fourth PFM product having received authorization from AMAC. This represents the second time APS will launch a product in conjunction with China Foreign Economy and Trade Trust Company, a Beijing-based asset manager owned by the Sinochem Group, and in which APS will act in an advisory capacity. This will be the fourth PFM product launched by APS's PFM Woofy, following numerous launches in 2020, and follows their 2020 decision to focus on China-related strategies. Finally, on the topic of foreign financial institutions looking to grow their China market share, CityWire Asia reports that despite increased geopolitical tensions on the global stage, banks from the US and Europe are continuing to deepen their exposure and expand their operations in China's 50 trillion dollars dollar financial markets. The five largest US banks, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Citigroup, and Goldman Sachs invested a collective 78 billion US dollars in China over 2020, up from just under 71 billion US dollars in 2019, with JP Morgan leading the way with 19.2 billion US dollars of investment. Citigroup, Bank of America, and Goldman Sachs all invested over 10 billion US dollars over 2020 as they sought to expand their operations in China. HSBC is also set to invest six billion US dollars across APAC in the coming years, and has signaled strong intentions for increased investment in China. Despite this investment, an economist for Texas CIB, Gary Ng, notes that asset and wealth management joint ventures in China have not performed well compared to local operators. Mr. Ng also noted that demand for asset management will continue to grow, and the key for foreign firms to succeed is via cross-border distribution channels. At a regulatory level, the People's Bank of China is working with the European Union on converging green investment classifications across the two markets, with the aim of implementing a jointly recognized environmental credential classification system by the end of 2021, as reported by the Financial Times. With the G20 Summit scheduled for October this year, PBOC plans to establish a sustainable finance study group to advance sustainable investment. European sustainable finance disclosure rules, which came into effect on 10 March 2021, require asset managers to disclose the negative environmental and social impacts of their investments and rank products accordingly, though many Asian asset managers are unsure as to what extent they need to comply. Accordingly, asset managers in Hong Kong, Singapore, and across APAC, are taking advice on the extent to which they should comply. China's AMAC already requested asset managers to undertake a self-assessment of their green investing practices back in 2019. The latest version of the survey showed that 40.5% of public fund management companies had incorporated green investing into their strategic planning, though only around half of these firms offer disclosures to investors. Additionally, only one-third of public FMCs reported having green investment business targets, and just under 40% of them had achieved these goals. Common standards between China and the EU could help shape ESG and SRI reporting standards across the region, as APAC is relatively fragmented when it comes to this kind of reporting and disclosure compared to the EU. With regards to China's nascent ESG fund industry, it reached $26.4 billion US dollars at the end of 2020, more than tripling its AUM across that year. Rising investor demand and government initiatives are reportedly the underlying causes for this growth. Clean energy funds accounted for 70% of ESG fund AUM and comprised over 90% of net ESG fund sales in 2020, and it is noted that the momentum for ESG investing in China is increasing. Sino-Foreign Joint Ventures, perhaps leveraging the experience of the foreign asset manager in their home market, comprised 9 of the top 10 asset manager rankings and held 61% of China's ESG AUM at the end of 2020. In addition to asset managers, the wealth management subsidiaries of China's banks are increasing their ESG offerings, starting with fixed income products, and trust companies are also increasingly making forays into the space especially trust companies within a wider conglomerate where the core business has a strong incentive to push into green and sustainable finance. The governor of the People's Bank of China, Yi Gang, also recently stated that climate change posed new challenges to financial stability and that the associated risks to credit, markets and liquidity needed to be properly assessed and managed. To meet all its climate goals, China needs to invest an estimated 16 trillion US dollars according to Goldman Sachs. With green and sustainable finance increasingly mentioned in China's five-year plans, and investors also seeking more ESG investments, the potential convergence of green investment classifications with the EU should provide a sound base for asset and wealth managers and investors alike in growing the ESG asset base in China. Also in regulatory developments, Li Keqiang, China's premier, reiterated that China's retirement market remains welcoming to participation from foreign asset managers and underscored the significant opportunities for foreign firms proffering pension products in the market, as reported by Ignites Asia. Speaking at the China Development Forum 2021, Mr. Li noted That as China's over 60 population exceeded 260 million individuals, quote, potential demand for various retirement services is massive, end quote, and that it was, quote, an enormous sunrise industry, end quote, which foreign firms were welcome to participate in. Foreign firms were invited to enter the market in an orderly fashion and to ensure fair competition with their domestic peers. As it stands, the insurance joint venture of Standard Life Aberdeen received approval to launch pension investment products in January 2021, and AXA investment managers Manulife and Credit Suisse are participating in China's third pension pillar via local joint ventures. Moving on, Ant Group has soft-launched a new investment advisory platform on its LEP platform in partnership with five domestic asset managers, as reported by Fund Selector Asia. This platform is different from the joint venture it has with Vanguard, and currently hosts investment products from Harvest, China Southern, Zhongou, E-Fund, and China AMC. Functioning as a fund supermarket, the new feature, Toguo Guangjia, has had a limited rollout thus far, and investors can subscribe to strategies across three risk levels, with a minimum investment of 1,000 RMB. The move to offer investment products from other asset managers than Vanguard was signposted back in 2020, with an Ant spokesman stating that they would not monopolize robo-advisory services via the Vanguard joint venture. We are not sure if Vanguard considered their joint venture with Ant to be exclusive or not, but they appeared positive on the launch of the new platform, citing their belief that the advisory space in China was new and growing, with 19 licenses being issued so far and that the addition of the new platform would further enhance the investment advisory space. Also in China's nascent investment advisory space, it is already being racked by a price war, with Zhong'o Asset Management cutting fees charged for its investment advisory services by nearly half, from 45 basis points to 25, across three in-house retail investment strategies. As reported by Sina Finance, as they warned investors not to let the price war bias their approach to wealth management as they brought their investment advisory services to Alipay's new Non-Vanguard joint venture platform just mentioned Jong Oh was offering a limited-time deal whereby users could transfer their invested capital into one of their offered strategies for no charge other investment managers spoke out against the move noting that they had no plans to lower their fees and stressing that retail investment advisors should focus on good consultation services and building scale via generating long-term returns for their clients, rather than focusing on fee structures. It was also noted that so long as fees did not exceed 2% or 200 basis points, then they were suitable for investors. Back in August 2020, CSRC had given window guidance to investment advisors that they should end their practice of offering fee discounts, during product launches, though the regulator also noted that investors may take a while to get used to the idea of paying for investment advice. Having been launched in 2019, China's investment advisory program boasts 15 entities with onboarded products, and another 80-odd asset managers and financial institutions have applied for the license. Those who have received licenses and launched products generally report strong growth in this segment. And finally, as covered in a previous episode, Chinese investors are not enamored with ETFs tracking broad indices. However, as Bloomberg reports, they do appear to have an affinity for thematic or sector-specific ETFs, with Chinese asset managers raising $1.7 US dollars across four thematic ETFs. This follows a 24-hour period in 2020, in which four ETFs which tracked the newly launched star market raised 15.4 billion US dollars 2020 also saw more thematic ETFs than index ones for the first time since 2004 when the first ETF was launched fees are perhaps one reason why ETFs have struggled to gain broad traction among investors with Ray Cho a partner at Oliver Wyman a consultancy noting that Chinese ETFs may have management fees of 50 basis points against their US counterparts, which may have management fees as low as 5 bips. So rather than focus on the low cost of ETFs, Chinese investors will use them to access markets that they would otherwise not have access to. The star market provides a perfect example of this. As star market-focused ETFs enable investors to gain access to a bourse which they would otherwise need 500,000 renminbi in a brokerage account to trade on. China's retail-dominated investor landscape may also contribute, as Daiming, a fund manager with Hengsheng AMC, notes that they tend to stock pick when markets are bullish and switch to passive investments when markets are bearish, and they are less confident about stocks. As increasing numbers of foreign asset managers receive public fund management licenses or take majority or 100% control of the FMC joint ventures, it will be interesting to see if the ETF landscape in China changes, in what ways it changes, and how long changes take to occur. So, that's it for this week. The reiteration that China's pension market would be open to foreign firms is certainly a key takeaway. There have been numerous reforms taken in that space, but giving foreign asset and wealth managers increased access would probably usher in several new kinds of products and give a lot more credence to the investment products in the market, hopefully spurring some competition among the Chinese players in that space as well. Also good to see the People's Bank of China working with the EU on converging the green investment classifications. APAC is fairly fragmented in that regard with Hong Kong, Singapore, and China all pursuing different initiatives to promote themselves as ESG, SRI, Green Finance, and Sustainable Finance Investment Centres. Also, the winner of the race among the foreign asset and wealth managers to be the first institution to have 100% control of a public fund management company will be interesting to see. Will it be BlackRock, will it be JP Morgan, or will it be someone completely different? However, those are just our thoughts. Let us know your thoughts in the comments below. If you made it thus far and enjoyed the podcast, do give us a like, share, and subscribe for future content. If you didn't enjoy this week's episode, thank you for sticking around this long, but let us know in the comments what you think we should have covered instead of the material that we had. Thank you all very much for listening, and we hope you join in next time.